a Podcast One production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. This is part two of Peter's conversation with manager, record label owner and music publisher, John Watson. Being a manager is filled with opportunity and rock and roll moments, along with plenty of ways to get it wrong and go off track. In this episode, they look at the role of a manager in the life and career of a recording artist, how it worked for being the manager of Silverchair, Missy Higgins, Birds of Tokyo, Goitier, Cold Chisel and more. Each artist requires a different approach, especially now in the era of social media and music streaming. So have you gone on the journey of these, the lives of these people from their beginnings? I mean, whether it's Silverchair or, I mean, even Pete Murray, I know you're not mm-hmm. there with him now, but th- their journeys are never just about writing the song and recording the material. The journey is about the pressures and the, the highs and lows of actually being in the business and in advance, desperately wanting to be successful, and then all of a sudden you are successful, and some, suddenly you turn it to each other and go, "Fuck, this is much more difficult than I thought it was going to be." All of that's completely true. Um, yeah, I think you end up having it varies artist by artist, you know, and but you always have some level of personal engagement. I spoke to Pete yesterday. We haven't managed him for I don't know how long now, six years or something. But he called yesterday for a catch up on a couple of things. Wanted to bounce something around. You know, mm. we're still friends, so. Um, I I think that it's a, it's a delicate juggling match. I think that with Silverchair, I was definitely strapped in for the ride right alongside them. And looking back, and I was doing that because I really wanted to make a difference. I wanted to do the best job I could possibly do. I felt very protective. I look back on it now and go, maybe I was a bit too close. And that part of what a manager needs to do is to not be on the ride. The manager has to be standing off the ride, looking up at the ride, saying to the artist, okay, you're on a roller coaster. There's a big dip coming up. Be ready for it. Here comes the dip. Here it is. It'll be over shortly and there's the dip. Now, long, slow climb coming up, you know. Mm. So being able to actually provide some perspective, to be a balanced voice, to kind of lift lift them up out of the lows and talk them down off the highs a little bit is part of the role as well. As I say, though, it does vary artist by artist and... And, t- and situation by situation, the nature of managing Silverchair's 15-year-olds compared to 25-year-olds is very different. Um, so what you really need most as a manager is flexibility to be, as I said, the art- I always have that view of the old hippie yin-yang sy- symbol as being like the artist and manager, and it's redrawn and redrawn over time. You as a manager need to be egoless enough, I think, to adjust yourself to fit the right shape for the artist of what they need, not necessarily what they want, what they need to be, to do the things that they either can't do for themselves or don't want to do for themselves. Every artist will be capable of doing different things and wanting to do different things. So the manager needs to be able to compliment them, you know, like the old, uh, was the rom-com movie, you know, You Complete Me, um, to, to be that that other half of, of the puzzle. So that changes from artist to artist and time to time. So you get success serious success with a, with any of these the the many people you've now looked after and then there's a 
when you've been in the business a while, you know that there's this point of the pinnacle you get to and then you're going to come down the other side a bit. And then in coming down the other side, my some of my experience has been resentment. I'm not there anymore. Oh, and that other recording artist that he's managing, they're having success. He's obviously spending more time with them than he is with me. That happened to you? Um... There's probably been a few of those sorts of moments, but not really with any of our current clients. Um, I mean, a, a difficult act like Wolf Mother, yeah, Wolf you Mother, probably can't win, can you? Because of, you know, individually they're actually all fine. It was the chemistry between them. They just, like, what made them really work as a band was there was this incredible friction between them. <laughs> and what made them impossible to manage was there was this incredible friction between them. Yeah. So that combustibility made for really dynamic rock and roll, but a real nightmare when you try and actually make the trains run on time. So, um, and in those situations, yes, it can become quite fractious. But generally speaking, I think that providing your being there for the artist in the way that they need and you're setting realistic expectations and you've got the right infrastructure around you because I'm not doing it all on my own. I've got a team of people and, you know, they're all working hard as well and you're delegating to those people and those people have their relationships with the artists too. So, you know, providing you're actually doing all the things that need to be done, then there shouldn't be an opportunity for the resentment. I think that the the thing that changes out of time with artists is how do they keep it sort of fresh for themselves? And, yeah, we've had all sorts of crazy experiences with that. I mean, Missy took me out for coffee. You know, she's had two albums in a row that are the biggest selling albums of the year in Australia, not the biggest selling Australian albums, the biggest selling albums full stop. We've finally, you know, we try to break America. She's had a gold single in America. She's built herself the hard way through touring, touring, touring to be able to sell two and a half, three thousand 3,000 tickets in all major markets in America. That's no small thing. She can tour America profitably after years of reinvesting Australian earnings over there to kind of get yourself to that point. And she takes me out for coffee and says, I've decided I'm retiring. Wow. I'm, going back to, I'm going back to uni. Um, if you're ever in Melbourne, make sure you give me a call. I'd love to have lunch, but don't call me about work. You know, and that that then was that four or five year gap between records. You right. know, so, um, and you have to be able to respect that that the artists will make their own choices. And your job as a manager is to grow their career by more than the size of the slice you take away. So you're growing the pie by more than the size of the slice you take away. You're there to add value. You're not there to find love and mercy. Sometimes along the way, you will find love and mercy, and it's fantastic when you do. But that's not the nature of your relationship. You're there to help and while you're helping, then you will continue to have a role. And when you're not helping, you shouldn't have a role. You know, you know, the artist has got other friends and other lovers in their lives. They don't need managers for that. So I feel like um, providing you keep that perspective, then you're able to offer them impartial navigation advice, give them the, the, the benefit of your experience. And one of my favourite lines is to say, look, you'll pay me the same amount whether you listen to me or not, but here's my advice. Um, and, you know, it's up to you whether you choose to take it. I used to <clears throat> constantly suggest that because I've managed the same woman singer, Miss Hines, for 45 years, that management had, had in our case, because we have become quite close friends, but that management really was uh, marriage without the sex. <laughs> Um, you're describing it very differently. And, and the empire that you've built, um, and, and I, I guess I, I should ask the question, did you, te- did you set out to build an empire or is it by accident? 
I don't think I have built an empire and I've actually set out to not build an empire. I, I feel like while my company might be big by Australian standards, it's not big by international standards at all. And we still at any given time only tend to have two or three active artists. You know, the roster looks bigger than it seems because we have Gautier, for example, mm. which is you know, was a wonderful success story for us across 2011 and, and 12. You know, Wally's been making a follow-up record ever since. So, um, you know, when you see all the names on the letterhead, it looks great. But at any given time, Cold Chisel aren't going to be active all the time, for example. Um, so at any given time, we don't necessarily have the same amount of engagement. And when I talk about, you know, helping grow the career, um, that doesn't mean you don't end up forming close friendships and it doesn't become personal. You do end up forming close friendships. It does become personal. My point is that stuff is the bonus. Mm. You're not doing it for that reason and you shouldn't expect to have a job for that reason. You're there to add value. And um, in my experience, most of the managers who get themselves into trouble with artists um, do so because they start to think it's about them. They start to think they're the rock stars. They start to think that, you know, the artist is the person taking 80% of their money. And, um, and I think that's the minute you start being one of those people, choosing one of those guys, it's a very guy thing, mm. um, it's all over. You know, you're getting 20% and, and running a company out of it precisely because at any given point, the artist will always be the primary driver of their own success or not. All you'll be doing is making a difference at the margin. Yeah. The, it's a good segue. You're, there's many of the people that you've managed that have, that have had careers much more so than just inside Australia. Have you ever thought you had to live in another part of the world? Well, I've um, spent a lot of time overseas. Uh, I was lucky in my last couple of years at Sony to be doing the international marketing job, which gave me a really great sort of apprenticeship in travelling around the world, bumping into things and having no idea what I was doing, but meeting lots of people and building some relationships. And then... Through the late 90s, managing Silverchair, I was overseas probably about half the time. Similarly with Missy and Wolfmother in the mid-2000s, you know, I spent, our kids were really little at the time. Um, and so we spent a lot of time in LA and New York in particular. And you took the family with you? Took the family with us because the kids were like, you know, uh, our son was born in 2002, our daughter, first daughter in 2004, second one, 2007. Um, so through that period, they were little kids, they weren't at school, we just sort of would go to LA for two or three months. So they actually knew what their father was doing during that period of time? Well, they would have, but they're a little young to remember now. Um, but we spent a lot of time overseas and that that was great and we really enjoyed it. And I've always enjoyed the challenge of, of working, particularly in the American business. Um, Post-Gautier, I made a really deliberate decision to step back from doing as much work in America. Um, so part of our sort of roster rebalancing was with that in mind. So Because I didn't want to, well, I didn't feel that I could continue to travel in the way that I was travelling without it placing undue stress on my family. And the co so that's where the co-management situation starts to evolve a bit as well? Well, perhaps less so for us. Uh, it could do. And I mean, with the presets, I'm only managing them for Australia and New Zealand and they will eventually find an overseas manager who we co-manage with. So that will be an example of that. But no, in our case, it was more about you know, Cold Chisel, largely an Australian-based yeah. project. Um, Birds of Tokyo didn't have a big international career because Kenny the singer is in Carnival, so he's sort of not. They're not really able to give a hundred percent of their, their self to building an international career. We had a bit of a tilt in America, but it didn't sort of quite connect for them. Um, you know, largely they've all got other interests, so it's 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 you know we're always still keen to get something going overseas, but it's not 
as pivotal to them perhaps as it might be to, say, Gautier, who's living in New York. Um, and with, with Wally in mind, I've deliberately stepped back from his management internationally and encouraging him to find other people or work with Danny Moore, who I already co-manage him with. Um, so I've, I've really quite deliberately stepped back from that. My wife's just about to graduate um, from studying medicine for, for nine years and heading to hospital, so I'm really... You'll be able to retire shortly. <laughs> so, I don't know, interns don't make that much money. Um, but it's... it's um, You'll never see it. My po- grief. My point is more that I guess the demands at home are huge, mm. so I, I'm not going to be able to spend, you know, three months on planes, trains and automobiles like I might have done 10 or 15 years ago. But it's still on behalf of... I mean, as, as you continue to discover these terrific young musicians and at the moment the roster's full but may not necessarily be the case in 12 months' time, the, the, these days it seems to me, because of the change, John, that's the, that's the bit I'm interested in your observation of, the change that we talked about at the beginning from how in the 70s it was you recorded an album then you went on the road and shook hands in every record store in the town and went to every radio station and on the odd occasion appeared on Countdown... And now the internet and social media and the the development of fame through other means, that that change, does that impact on your therefore you can stay here and these things will will evolve for you? To a point, yes, um, but only to a point. So I think it's easier than it's ever been to get to first base and harder than it's ever been to get a home run. So if you take Dustin Tebbett, who's probably, you know, the, the most developing artist on our roster. Talented man. Um, and he, we don't have a, any real partners in Europe, but just through organic um, playlist recommendations, you know, largely on streaming services, you know, he's able to make a good living out of what he earns out of European Spotify and Apple Music wow. um, royalties. And that's just happening through word of mouth. Now, None of that is sort of so big that he'd be able to go over and play to more than, you know, 600 or 1,000 people. But nonetheless, he's been able to get to the point of selling 600 or 1,000 people um, without really having to do too much about it, you know, Um, compared to back in the day where, you know, you would have had to have gone over and toured and toured to get yourself to that first base level. The, The way I usually describe it to artists in particular who are starting now is that the music business used to be linear. It used to be about getting past a series of gatekeepers. So in, in you know, the, the days of Hush... You're, you're going um, to say in my time. In the 70s, um, the, the process was you had all of these artists and they all wanted to be managed by you, right? Some of them even had to pretend to be managed by you to get a record deal. Um, so <clears throat> that's a cold chisel story. Read Jimmy's new book to hear about it. Um, the, uh, but it, they, it was a the, lie. It was a filthy lie. <laughs> it was a filthy lie. Um, so the artists had to... They had... had tens of thousands of artists who were all competing to get a manager. Once they got a manager and an agent, they would, those managers and agents would then compete to get an A&R person to sign the band to a record company. Once that A&R person had signed the band to the record company, you would hopefully get the record made and get it prioritised with the promotions person so it became one of the things on the top of the pile that got taken to a radio programmer or whoever was programming countdown or video hits. Those people then ordered off that somewhat small menu prepared for them by half a dozen record companies and put 15 songs into a, you know, into rotation on their radio station or into their Sunday night TV show. At that moment, for the first time, 
the audience entered the equation and said, what do we like and what do we not like? So if anybody remembers the TV show Get Smart, it was like the opening scene where you have to get past all of those doors to get to the phone booth at the end. All of those gatekeepers, typically middle-aged white blokes, um, you had to charm, cajole, persuade your way past each of them to so get the to the band it. is actually Maxwell Smart. The band is, yeah, and they missed it by that much. <laughs> um, so the, that, that model was linear. The audience entered at the final step largely. Now the model is circular. In the first instance, the artist talks to the audience. They put something on SoundCloud, they pop a video on YouTube, um, they pop a mix on Beatport, whatever their type of musical style is. And if what they're doing is resonant in some way, if it, if it strikes a chord, then people will tell their friends about it. And that happens really fast. And if they tell lots of friends, someone in, on the business side will notice. So a blogger will see that this song's getting a lot of plays on SoundCloud. They will talk about that fact amplify it, expose it to more people who tell more friends. As a result of that, you might find that uh, Spotify added to a bigger playlist or some promoter puts the band on a festival or community radio starts to play them. And this circular process of artist, audience, industry, artist, audience, industry uh, spirals upwards at a unimaginably fast pace um, until such time as mainstream media can take a look and instead of ordering just off the menu prepared for them by a big record company, they can look at, at their own audience and say, well, what are our own audience already listening to on Spotify or on Apple Music or, you know, wherever else, they, what are they buying on iTunes or whatever the, you know, the metric is they choose to use um, and choose to put those songs into rotation. So they're amplifying, they already kind of know what the hits are to a point and um, when they're adding them. So the, the the days of, yeah, I'll play your song because, you know, we've had a good round of golf together and you bought dinner afterwards are largely gone. And If only that was the the game of golf was the only thing that you had to cut part with in order to get that record on the record. Well, I, I, yes. But I, you I, wouldn't want to discuss that in any detail. I don't, I don't think that the statute of limitations has, has, expired, it, yeah. has expired sufficiently for you to go further down that particular road, Peter. People have to die, John. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Um, there's probably a few of them deserve to. Um, so, so now it's all about artists interacting with the audience. And I guess that that the way I would describe it, there was, there was this old line, I can't remember where it came from, but someone said to me that, you know, back in the 70s, A&R was easy. You walk into a pub, you look to your right, you look to your left. If you can't see the walls, you sign the band. Um, and I think in some ways, social media is just that on steroids. You know, it's looking at what's already striking a chord with an audience and it empowers artists who like to be audience-focused. And if you want to go back to your MBA studies, they would call this having a customer-oriented mindset. Um, artists would, would die at that thought. But if you look at younger artists and you look at the dominant artists of our time, pop-wise, Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, Lord, they are phenomenal communicators, you know, um, online. Mm. The, the way that they interact with their audience on Twitter and on Instagram is every bit as much a creative expression as the way they perform a show or the type of music video they make. And, um, you know, I often say that if you look at the history of the music business, in the 50s, all you had to do was look good and sing good. Someone else would write the song. Someone else would produce the records for you. Just be Elvis, be Perry Como, you know, you'll be fine. Um, 
Then the Beatles came along. They wrote their own songs. And they had to look good, sing good, write good, and a whole generation... And actually play the instrument. They played their instruments too. Um, And a whole generation of Fabian-type artists said, writing's not our job, we have writers do that. They went the way of the dinosaur. Come to the end of the 60s, the Beatles used to play for 25 minutes, right, their live shows. By the end of the 60s, you've got Monterey and Woodstock and all of a sudden you've got Zeppelin and Cream and all these incredible live artists. You've got The Who really exploding as a live artist. Now you've got to look good, sing good, write good and play good. You've got to do great live shows. Herman's Hermits and a whole heap of others went the way of the dinosaur. Jerry and the Pacemakers. Jerry and the Pacemakers ended up needing pacemakers. Um, Fast forward to the 80s and MTV comes along. A whole generation of, of album rock bands said, oh, we're serious artists, we're not making music videos. Madonna and Bruce Springsteen and Michael Jackson just mowed their grass. Yeah. So now you have to look good, sing good, write good, play good and make music videos. These are all part of your job if you want to actually compete, you know, for the mass audience. Now with social media, you have to look good, sing good, write good, play good, make good videos, take good photos, send good messages on Twitter understand how to engage people on Facebook, have a constant dialogue for making other types of communication on Snapchat or Vine or YouTube or whatever your different thing is, putting different mixes up if you're that kind of artist on Beatport. You don't have to do all these things, but you have to be in some of these channels and you have to view them as fun, creative expressions, not as eating your greens and doing your homework. They're actually part of being an artist now. So for artists who like that stuff, this is a great news story. For someone like Dustin, for example, who really sort of has a great eye for taking resonant photos that sort of look like his music, this is all good. It's all part of self-expression. You know, for other artists for whom they just want to make music, man, this is a much harder sort of um, world in which to live. So have these... Do you find that when they come to you, particularly, I mean, the ones you're managing, Birds of Tokyo, do they do they grasp this or is it something that you have to define for them? Some artists will get it more than others um, and some members of bands will get it more than others. You know, typically, typically you actually have to be swimming in the water in order to understand it, you know, so... Um, yeah, just if you take Birds of Tokyo as a case in point, Bernie, the bass player, is really, and Glenn are really engaged in social media. They're really good with it. Um, but they're naturally that way to begin with. They're following lots of people. They're constantly sharing stuff with their friends. Um, so, you know, it becomes a bit of a sort of you look after that bit, I'll look after this bit sort of thing, which often happened within bands, right? That, mm. that, that person looked after the album artwork. That person looked after was the one that took an interest in the books. It just becomes a bit more like that in a band situation. It's you know, where it gets trickier is for a solo artist because there's a lot more... Um, you know, their to-do list is much sort of longer now. But as I say, I don't think that if you said to Lord um, or to Ed Sheeran that this was their to-do list, they don't view it as their to-do list. They they view it as an opportunity. They view it as a fun form of expression. And and they're not necessarily having to drive 300 kilometres overnight to the next venue to do the show the next night. So their days are not about focused on touring in the in the same way that a band would have been in the in, well, the, in the cultures early days maybe although even if they are as you know there's that old line they don't pay you for the 20 for the hour that you're on stage they pay you for the 23 that you're hanging around um it's also a way of filling that time that like mm. it's it's actually an engagement stuff as distinct from just going out and getting trashed you can do these other things but i, I you know you mentioned chisel as a case in point 
as I say, in some ways, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Chisel's way of building a career was to go into Newcastle and pay to 100 people, come back a month later and pay to 150 people, come back two months later and pay to 250 people. And so it would go. The word of mouth would be, you would go to work on Monday and they'd say, what'd you do on Saturday night? So I saw this great band. Next time they come to town, you should check them out. So that process of word of mouth took a long time to sort of grow, or at least it took years for the word of mouth to get around because I might only tell one person at work or another person, you know, at footy training or whatever the case may be. Now the person walks out of the gig or plays the song online, instantly throws it onto Facebook and tells 300 people. You know, the same is true across all forms of culture. You, it used to be that if I saw a movie and it was good, I might get around to telling you about it at a dinner party next week. Now, while I'm walking back to the car, I can pop it on Twitter, you know, whatever you do, don't miss this. Boom, 300 people know. Equally, don't go and say, don't waste your money on this, it's a dog. Um, so word of mouth travels unfathomably fast now. And if you take it within our own roster, if you look at the journey, say, that Silverchair's song Tomorrow took in 1995 around the world where it became the most played song on modern rock radio in America eventually, but a good year after it came out in Australia, compared to the trajectory that somebody that I used to know by Gautier took in 2011, 12, internationally, it took weeks for it to have tens of millions, in fact, perhaps 100 million YouTube plays. Um, the, the ability, the exponential curve of adoption that happens when something strikes a chord now because of how ma the multiplier of how I share information online, how everybody shares information online, compared to when it used to happen by genuine word of mouth, as in talking, is vastly greater. The process is still the same. It's still about those 100 people discovering it and telling someone, but it's just amplified now because the devices allow you to do it. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks, and this is part two of his conversation with artist manager, record label owner and music publisher, John Watson. John's current roster now includes iconic Australian rock band Cole Chisel. They look back at how John came to be working with the band and how the band has fired up the spark once more. So let's talk about Chisel for a minute. At the APRA Awards when Cole Chisel were inducted into the Ted Albert uh, Outstanding Achievement bit, it was for me one of those extraordinarily emotional nights and two things happened that I have, well, I will never forget. One of them far less of a profile than the other, but obviously Don Walker's acceptance speech on behalf of the band was really a reflection of not just his intellect but of uh, a human being of some substance and the band knows it and were prepared to take a step backwards while he acknowledged the journey. But the big thing was there you were with John O'Donnell as his managers and there next to, next to you at the table you placed uh, his, the band's former manager and his wife and uh, Rod Willis and Gay and they were acknowledged in, in the way that grown-up men and women who have contributed over a long period of time to the journey of, of, a, of a career through the ups and downs, the good times, the bad times should be. And I, I, uh, I've probably not had an opportunity to ever say that to you before, but 
it was a resonant moment for not just me but for most of the people in that room. It was a resonant moment for us too. Um, you know, I'd known Rod for a long time um, and the band had parted ways with him some months before they ever called us. So, um, Well, he but, used to refer to them as his superannuation policy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Um, you know, I guess that it was a an ex- probably an extraordinarily difficult thing for Rod mm. um, in the same way as with Midnight Oil it would have been for Gary Morris, mm. um, although Gary stood down... Um, you know, some years before um, I came on board as the, as the band's manager. Um, but I think that in both cases, you have to recognise the fact that you're standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, we, the reason why these bands are able to do the business they're doing and strike the deep chord that they strike across Australian culture is because of not just the work that's been done in the last few years, not even mainly because of the work that's been done in the last few years, it's mainly because of a body of work that was built up over decades, um, both in terms of the music they released, but also how that music was treated and how it was presented to the public and the, the specialness in the way it was, it was preserved. Um, so I think that, it, you know, it would have been appalling had Rod not been at that table. I'm sure it was difficult for him in some ways, but I'm incredibly glad that he did because there was a beautiful closing of the circle with that, you know, and um, I don't think it's betraying a, a confidence to say that, you know, we started managing the band at the end of 2009. Um, Rod had stopped managing them about four or five months prior um, and started making a lot of plans to sort of take their music into the digital age. They'd never been on iTunes. You know, there wasn't really kind of much of a social media presence around them and so forth. There's a lot of new stuff that the band wanted to get into and we were perhaps better placed to bring that to them. Did you Um, reach out to them? No. No, actually what happened was um, John O'Donnell, um, who I had worked with at Sony. That that Trivia Pursuit guy. The guy from the the trivia team, the the lead in the saddlebags guy. (laughs) Um, John O'Donnell had been at a barbecue on the North Shore somewhere, a school barbecue, and the head of Warners was also, uh, at the time, Ed St. John, was also on the same barbecue. And as they were sort of turning sausages for the kids, Ed said, you'll never guess what, you know, Rod and Cole Chisel have parted ways. So John called me later that night and said, oh, good gosh, you know, Rod Willis, no longer managing Cole Chisel, we should do it together. And John was not working at a record company at the time. And I said, yeah, that'd be funny, ha, ha, ha. Didn't sort of really, you know, expect it. And then about, you know, Two weeks later, I got a phone call from Don saying, you know, would you like to have lunch? And I called John. I said, I got a phone call. And then two days later, John called me and said, I got a phone call too. <laughs> and it was like, they're going to try and play us off against each other here. I said, we really should do this together. It would make a lot more sense. So the band had a cunning plan to sort of, you know, have a couple of options. We said, actually, don't have a couple of options. We'll do it together. We both love the band. So I started managing Cold Chisel. There was a poster that was on the door of the record store I worked at as a kid in Townsville that I took down after the gig and took home and put on my bedroom wall. And that poster is now on my office wall as the band's manager, which is a real kick um, and a great thrill. So um, we started managing the band in 2009. Uh, At the end of 2009, a lot of plans were made through 2010 to take their music, you know, into... um, iTunes and and to do a a big reissue of a lot of unreleased material and also to make a new record and and tour in 2011. And sadly, in January of 2011, Steve Press, which Mm. died quite suddenly. And at this point, 
you know, there was a certain level of, of uh, awkwardness and estrangement between the band and, and Rod, their former manager. When I called Jimmy and Don to tell them about Steve, the very first thing that each of them asked was, has anybody told Rod yet? And Don immediately called Rod. And that's the family thing, I think, that, you know, goes with being a manager and being a band and that, you know, your, some of your earlier questions were going to that, that there is a deepness of a bond that has been formed over, you know, what was it, 30 years or something of, of you know, Rod um, running interference and taking flack and wading through shit on behalf of that band that, you know, even if people end up going in a different direction, doesn't mean that they don't remember exactly how much of a difference that made. I saw Chisel play at the Entertainment Centre uh, when Eric was still alive, Eric Robinson, and uh, it was the first tour that you guys had undertaken. I don't think I have ever been more um, taken back by the quality and the, the it, it, it was such a strong performance environment to be in. Um, so much more than I, you know, it's all the years of seeing Chisel in the Bondi Lifesaver and or, or the many, many other times that they'd played, it seemed to me that they had, you had taken them and evolved them through confidence, self-confidence, confidence in themselves to a level that um, you still have to sit there in, in astonishment at how good they are. I don't know that we would get the credit for that. I think they deserve the credit for that. Um, and, I, and I would also say that the audience sort of deserves the credit for it. Here's what I mean by that. Songs take on a life of their own over time. Mm. They grow barnacles, they accrue experience. So what starts out as being just a song on a record becomes over time the song from that road trip, the song from that funeral, the song from that graduation, the song from that night with that girl. And when you've got songs like Cold Chisel songs, every one of them ends up accruing this mass of emotional attachment from from the audience. And it's an incredible thing to stand on stage and look at the audience while the band plays these songs because the emotion that's coming back from the crowd is so intense, but it's because everybody's having these little epiphanies. That person's on a road trip and that one's at the barbecue and the other one's at the date with the girl. They're all reliving and, and bringing back to life this intense stuff. And there was this wonderful review of that tour, which I agree was, you know, a unique and, and an incredible thing to be part of. I think we all rediscovered them. Yes, I think that's true. And I think also, you know, it was a moment in time, Steve's passing force, all concerned to reevaluate it. You know, as Jimmy will talk about in his, in his new book, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on in his life as he sought to kind of come to terms with a lot of demons that he'd been perhaps suppressing up to that point. A lot of that was coming out on stage. You know, I think the, there was an intensity to the band in recognising that they'd Taken it, you know, taken it for granted in a way they shouldn't have in the past, and there's a lot of emotion going on on the stage and off the stage. But my favourite review of it was a review in New Zealand, which said, "I can't wait for them to come back again, so we can sing their songs to them one more time." And I thought it was just a fantastic way of describing what was going on. Um, and the other thing that was incredible is that you had all of these younger people who were coming along who'd never seen the band play live, but who had discovered the music through it continuing to be played on the radio. You know, there are 18-year-olds for whom k was a brand new song. And um, so 
you know, their parents had played them the records or whatever. So you had this whole sense of discovery also from a new audience who was taking the band completely at face value and going, this is an extraordinary live, you know, proposition. And that's the other point to note is that Midnight Oil and Cold Chisel were forged in a fire, you know, and steel gets hardened when it's forged in a fire. And by that I mean they came through the pubs of Sydney at a time where on any given night you could go and see the Angels or Rose Tattoo or the Divinals or Midnight Oil or Cold Chisel or In Excess or Ice any, any mm. Ice House, mm. any number of other sensational mm. bands. So firstly, you better be really on your game or someone's going to go to the other pub down the road. And once they're there... They're all going to get plastered, so you better reach out from the stage, grab them by the throat, and do not let go. And in different ways, that's what those bands learnt to do. You know, and if you didn't do that, you wouldn't have survived through that period. And I think that the the intense work ethic and it's a cold term, but the quality control that they have, the standards they set is a better way of putting it, for themselves about what a show needs to be and what... The, the, the amount they need to put into it, it is just not like what happens in most other parts of the music business. And I, I say this as someone who's been around a bit and sees what these bands bring to a show and go, oh, that's how you do it. In part three of Peter Ricks's conversation with John Watson, they continue their look at the resurgence of Cold Chisel, what made them finally come back together, and John's recent work with another landmark Aussie rock band, Midnight Oil. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.